Welcome to the 1,000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I am the founder of 1,000 Hours Outside and so thrilled today to be here with Susan Lynn. Welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here and 1,000 Hours Outside sounds just Fantastic. <laughs> it is a lovely way to, to live life. So Susan, yes. I um, I found you through your book, Consuming Kids, and we're going to be talking about the case for make-believe today. But Consuming Kids is just such a fabulous book. Um, and so I, Susan, I told my husband, his name is Josh. I said, I would love to get Susan on our podcast. You know, so he looked you up and he said, there's a, there's a picture of her holding a puppet. He said, is this her? <laughs> I said, that's her. <laughs> that's her. And then we, you know, we've communicated and, and landed on and doing this podcast surrounding your book, The Case for Make Believe, uh, which I've also read recently, Saving Saving Play in a Commercialized World. Just both, both fantastic, eye-opening, very eye-opening books. Oh, oh. Um, so thank you for what you've written. And you also have a new book coming out later this year as well, right? I do. Um, on September 13th, um, the new press is publishing Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. I'm so excited to read that one. That's really not that far away. No. So thank you for these amazing uh, just books filled with information for parents. Can I tell, I'll tell a little bit about you. You're an author. There's so much here, actually. I'm going <laughs> to paraphrase. People know that there's way more than this. An author, psychologist, and award-winning ventriloquist, uh, Susan Lynn is a world-renowned expert on creative play and the impact of media and commercial marketing on children. Her book, Consuming Kids, has been praised in publications as diverse as The Wall Street Journal and Mother Jones. Um, helped launch the movement to reclaim childhood from corporate marketers. And then the Boston Globe called your book, The Case for Make-Believe, a wonderful look at how play can heal, heal children. You've been featured on Good Morning America, Today, 60 Minutes, Dateline, The Colbert Report, acclaimed documentary, The Corporation. Uh, you're um, the founding director of the Campaign for Commercial-Free Childhood. That's fantastic. They do that screen-free week. So uh, we are connected with them. Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood is now called Fair Play. Okay. You've been uh, uh, in several episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, there's so much here, Susan. And um, you have just done so much to impact kids individually and then, you know, our culture as a whole. So thank you. So, Susan, uh, one of the things I thought was super interesting is that your life path started when you were a child. Um, it almost seems like happenstance. You said someone gave you a puppet and and you're and here you are. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah. Um, so when I was six, <clears throat> I was interested in big words, you know, like hypnotism and ventriloquism. And um, there were ventriloquists on television that I saw. And my mother took me to the library and there was no kid's book on hypnotism, but there was a kid's book on ventriloquism. And so I started practicing ventriloquism and just by chance, um, a friend of the family came to visit and brought me a sock puppet. So I named the sock puppet um, Sidnifer Dragon And I just began using him. And so when I was 
uh, 10 or 11, I started appearing on amateur television shows. Wow. And wow. yeah, so that led to doing some performances. And um, so I became a professional ventriloquist as an adult. Wow. I think it's such a fascinating thing to think about our children and the interest that they have at such young ages. And to think that, you know, that might be their life's path, um, like how it's been for you. And so now you use your, um, you use your puppets and you use them with children uh, in, in a, a wide variety of ways. Can you, can you talk about what you do there? Well, um, f for a long time, um, I did live performances all over the country. And then um, I started um, doing some television work as well. Um, I was fortunate, so fortunate um, to work with Fred Rogers. Mm -hmm. So I appeared on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood um, with my puppets um, and sort of over, not, not all the time, but you know, periodically over the course of many years, I was on the show. And then um, I also started making videotapes about difficult issues for kids. So, you know, videotapes about the death of a friend or um, um, chronic illnesses, having a mentally ill parent, and then I started making videos with the Mr. Rogers production team. And so we did one to help children with cancer go back to school, a couple of others. And then we did a series on racism to help kids talk about racism, prejudice, diversity. And that one um, is called um, Different and the Same. That's beautiful. Because I mean, that's really what the message needs to be. You know, we're all both different and the yeah. same from each other. Yeah. And so, um, so then your path to all of this research, um, consuming kids and the case for make-believe, you know, when did, when did that shift sort of happen? Um, I started, um, I was, I was, one thing I noticed about, um, my puppets is that children would talk to them and that, that they um, would say things to the puppets that they might not say otherwise. And I started um, working in a Head Start classroom, just sitting and talking to kids with my puppets. And um, I noticed that when they had puppets on their hands, all sorts of things, you know, came out. So eventually, I got a job as a puppet therapist at Boston Children's Hospital. So I worked there and then I, I began working with kids coping with HIV as well. And, um, and between those two jobs, I went back and got you know, my doctorate in counseling psychology. Wow. So, so, you know, my, so my experience, you know, from both of those books, you know, comes from these intense interactions yeah. with children over many years. And then um, when I was um, working on, on different and the same, 
I started, one of the consultants was a psychiatrist named Alvin Poussaint, who is among other things, um, the author of a book called Raising Black Children, and also was an activist in Mississippi in the 1960s, in the, in the 1960s civil rights movement. And it was there that I started, you know, being in working with him. I, uh, he hired me and we began working together. Sorry, it's kind of convoluted. Well, this is a good story, um, though. It's always neat to hear how someone, you know, th this sort of weaving journey. It's very encouraging. Yeah, I, I it um, I've been really fortunate. I've just been really lucky. So um, anyway, um, we he hired me to work with him. He had a media center at a children's mental health center, and it was there that I started getting really concerned about commercialism. Mm -hmm. I was seeing it at home. I was raising my daughter at the time. I was seeing it in the kids that I was working with. And then what changed me from a concerned parent to an activist was when PBS imported Teletubbies mm. from Britain and started marketing it as educational for babies. Yeah. And they had no evidence right. that it was educational for babies. And that was appalling to me. And so um, Alvin Poussaint and I um, wrote an article that was about the real problem with Teletubbies, because at the time, uh, Jerry Falwell was accusing Tinky Winky of being gay. And the point of our article was not the problem with Teletubbies was not Tinky Winky's alleged sexual orientation. The problem was that it was a way of hooking babies on screens and selling kids just a whole bunch of junk. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I really love your story, Susan, because um, your interests preceded, but then intertwined all the way through uh, your life's journey, you know, to, to have had these experiences and have your eyes open and, you know, then to get your doctorate and all of those things um, is, is interesting. I think for, for people, you know, as we live, we, our eyes are opened and uh, we can pursue new and um, new past, but that are sort of in a similar vein. I think it's interesting. You talked about, you got your sock puppet when you were six. And one of the topics that sort of was intertwined in both books was this loss of middle childhood, uh, ages six to 12. Is that, uh, can we talk about that? Um, sort of what's mm -hmm. happening and, and what has changed in the past several generations for that age group uh, specifically? Well, what, what has changed is um, children's immersion in commercialized culture and more recently digitized commercialized culture and which gives corporations um, unfettered access mm. to them. And, and the interests of corporations are what's best for corporations is not necessarily what's best for children. Right. What's, you know, so, so this, this need to put profits above everything else means that commercial culture often um, inundates kids with messages that aren't really good for them. 
And, um, and one of the messages has to do with something that marketers call um, kids getting older, younger. They even have an acronym for it. It's called KGOI. Wow. And so, so basically what marketers do is exploit children's developmental vulnerabilities. Um, they work, I, I'm so sad and embarrassed to say, they work with child psychologists. You know, they do research and, and the research is often about what kids like, not necessarily what I said before, what's best for them. So one of the things that they found is that kids admire older kids and emulate them. You know, they want to be like them. And so the, the marketing, what marketers do with that is think, well, you know, um, four-year-olds like to be like 12-year-olds. So let's market it to them as if they were 12-year-olds. 12-year-olds like to be like 18-year-olds. So why don't we market to them as if they were 18, you know, and so on. And so um, what happens is that young children get the trappings of adolescence without having um, the, the developmental, the cognitive wherewithal to cope with what those trappings might bring to them. So you get six-year-olds wearing, you know, highly sexualized clothing and, um, and, and what is missing is middle childhood. And middle childhood is really important, um, particularly for girls, because it's a time when they have all of their basic skills, at least for neurotypical kids, they have all of their basic skills, but, um, and they're not dealing with this rush of hormones, right. you know, that happens in adolescence. Peer pressure isn't, isn't quite as important to them as it is in adolescence. So they can try out new things. They can, they can experiment. They, you know, they, they, they can do all sorts of things. They can gain mastery over lots of different things. And so, um, it, it's just sad that that's missing, yeah. that, that six-year-olds have to worry about what they look like or whether they're overweight or, you know, feel that they're not mm. pretty. You know, all of the messages that they get from tech and media companies. Yeah. One of the things I read in your book, there was a statistic about, you know, it was maybe like 11-year-olds or something, you know, they're only... They're only playing. They're only playing make believe, you know, very short a little bits anymore. So I, I asked around, you know, uh, people, you know, when you were a child, you know, how what age did you play until? You know, I rem I had a dollhouse in my closet at least into middle school, and uh, so many people said they did. They play with their dolls and you know till they were thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Um, you say, wow, yeah, and then especially some that said they had younger siblings, they would still play or cousins or things like that. Um, um, but you say the road to losing out on middle childhood begins in infancy. Uh, what what does that mean? It it means that um, even infants 
become hooked on commercial culture. They, and, um, and once you know, you're dependent on, on commercial culture mm. for stimulation or for soothing, you're vulnerable um, and available to all of these commercial messages, including the ones that tell you that at six, you should have you know, the clothes and trappings of adolescence. Yeah. I like how you say, um, it's just uh, enc- extra encouragement. The longer that you can delay, um, the longer babies have a chance to develop the capacity to make things happen to solve problems, to create their own arguments, and to generate creative play. I, I thought your wording there and throughout the book is very encouraging and, and a really needed reminder um, of why we wait when we can. Uh, I, You know, it's interesting reading your books. It, it brought me back to my childhood, and I remember seeing commercials, you know, of micro machines. Those were the little cars that were out when I was a kid. And, you know, the commercial would have like this whole world, you know, as all this stuff. And and I always noticed that it was older kids. I, I remember thinking like, I don't think kids that, that age play with these cars, you know, <laughs> even, you know, you have these thoughts, but then, you know, you would, you would beg or you would save your money and you would buy the thing, but you didn't have the whole world. You know, you just got the little package with the cars and, um, so it's interesting to read some of the background, all of the things that you've researched of what's really going on with the commercials and um, and the tactics. You talk a lot about the tactics. So it's very interesting. Yeah. And, one, and one thing is that when, when you were growing up, maybe, and certainly when I was growing up, it was, you know, it was pretty much um, commercials, right. you know, 30 second commercials, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Actually, that wasn't quite true when I was growing up because when I was growing up, um, they didn't have um, laws about incorporating advertising right into programming. So there were children's programming where the advertising was, you know, just seamlessly, you know, connect, interspersed or entwined in the content. In the 1970s, they, they did start, they did pass regulations that didn't allow that. But then in the 1980s, most of those regulations were repealed during Ronald Reagan's presidency. Wow. Um, and where, where there was a lot of, de, of corporate de, deregulation in, in you know, all sorts of fields. So, um, but, but what happened in the 1980s is that it became um, two things happened. One is it became okay to create a program for the sole purpose of selling toys. And that's when the media link toy thing began in to just explode. And then the other thing that happened in the 1980s um, is that that's when technology, the communication technologies really began to take off. Yeah. And so yeah. Um, before that, you know, kids could see things on television, but it wasn't on all that often. Right. Today, you know, it's not just television and it's, or it's kids watching TV on their laptops or on their tablets. So, um, but it's also, you know, they, they see these 
programs or play these games at home where they see them on smartphones or you know on tablets they see them basic in the back seat of cars in restaurants you know you can take this digital media anywhere right. and and so i mean i think kids kids play because they need to and so one thing that kids have all this stimulation the the urge to play, the urge to create, I think it's stifled today. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash 1000 hours. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. A theme in your book, The Case for Make-Believe, is that play is healing. And so it really made me think, well, if, if we're losing play in middle childhood, if we're losing play just across the board in a lot of ways, um, you know, how is that affecting kids' healing um, so can you talk a bit, I know there's so, you have great stories in your book, um, about kids healing through play. Uh, can we talk about that topic for a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, creative play is the foundation of learning, creativity, constructive problem solving, um, and, also the capacity, oh, it's a way that kids gain, the jargon word is mastery, but some sense of control over what's going on in their lives. 
And it's also the way they wrestle with life to make it meaningful. Mm. And so when we play, truly play creatively as um, this, the pediatrician and psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott said, um, we play in the service of the dream and that it's, it's in play and maybe only in play that we can really truly be ourselves. Wow. And, and so, so we, we express ourselves when we play our true selves. Yeah. And, and at the same time in that self-expression is an opportunity to work through things that are difficult or, or painful or, you know, hard for us, whatever we're thinking about or struggling about. Mm -hmm. At the time. And, and you say that childhood is hard. And I really like how you remind parents and caregivers um, that, you know, some kids and some of the kids that you talked about in your book, you know, and I used to teach, I taught, um, I taught for a year in, a, in an inner city school. And those kids had had really hard lives. So, um, you know, and, and some of the stories that you had gone through in your book of kids that really were experiencing intense tragedy. But you also talk about all children. You know, you say all children experience some degree of anger, fear, and bewilderment. Oh, I, I, like, I, I thought this was a great reminder. Most children come up against the limitations of their caregivers. You know, and I relate to that. I have limitations. You know, I say, you know, I'm a, I'm a mediocre parent, you know, or trying, <laughs> you know, but I have a lot of limitations. So, you know, how um, you talk, I mean, there's, this is a really good, Susan, the slings, <laughs> it's really good. The slings nice. and arrows of everyday living. What a statement, you know, a, a, such a reminder that, Kids, no matter what situation they're in, they're, they're dealing with things. Um, you know, can you talk about, you know, so some of the sort of ordinary, what are some of the ordinary stressors and, and then some of the more, um, you know, obviously you talked about the loss of a friend or chronic illness, um, but what are some of the more everyday experiences that kids are uh, having and play helps them? One is um, the birth of a younger sibling which, which, you know, is a really big deal yeah. in the life of a young child. And, um, and, you know, children are ambivalent at best, you know, about that. I mean, all of a sudden they have to share their parents, they have to share their, the attention, they, they, you know, have to cope with people coming over and, you know, ooing and eyeing at the baby and perhaps ignoring them. Mm. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's an, un, it's a mixed blessing, let's put it that way. And, and so um, one story that I love um, is, is this um, a little girl was about to get a sibling. And so her parents sat her down and, you know, she sat on the couch and they sat with her and they said, um, you know, we're going to, you're going to have a new baby in the house. And so, so she got up and she 
without saying a word, she went to the toy box and she pulled out an old, old baby doll and she hurled it across the room and she came back and she said, no more baby. And mm. her parents were kind of stunned, but, but they didn't punish her for that. What they did is it allow her to play about babies. And she played about babies just so intensely, you know, and then the baby was born and she was a terrific or is a terrific older sister. Yeah. I think that what happens is that when kids express anger about, um, about events of their lives, about events in their lives, that it's hard and scary for adults. Hmm. And one thing I think we need to remember is that, that kids, the kids' feelings are as deep and as passionate as adults' feelings. I mean, they're capable of great love, great grief, hmm. rage. What they don't have and what they need help with, they don't have the cognitive, um, the maturity their brains haven't developed enough, the frontal cortex where judgment sits doesn't develop until the mid twenties. Um, so they don't have the wherewithal to deal with it. And that's where they need help mm. with adults. You know, basically the message kids need to get is it's okay to be angry, but you can't hurt anybody or yourself. Right. You know. Right. It was it was a it was a good reminder to me to think back, you know, on my own childhood. You had a story about a little boy that was um I mean maybe transitioning from one school to the next. I think maybe preschool to kindergarten and all the big feelings that brought up. And it reminded me of, you know, you know, I remember going and visiting the middle school, you know, and they bust you over there and so you're like, what am I going to wear? You know, how am I going to manage here? And and you sort of forget that these are really big things for kids. Potty training you brought up, um, even transition uh, from a crib to a bed, all of these big unknowns. They're, 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 they, can, they can be challenging mm -hmm. for kids. And, um, you know, in the case of the little boy, he'd been at this daycare center for his entire life just about. Yeah. And so, you know, leaving that was scary for him. And, and the school was, you know, filled with big kids. Right. And, and, you know, that came out in his play, his, his puppet play where, you know, he and my puppet started singing a song that he initiated about, you know, leaving, leaving school and, but he's a big boy, you know, and, He'll be fine, but he was sad about leaving my puppet. It was um, it was astonishing. It's profound. I mean, the, it's profound, and also just the the capacity for creativity, mm -hmm. right? That 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 so many children have is just so human. I mean, it's really one of the best things about being human is that we can create. Yeah. And it's so, so worrisome and sad to me that we tend to just drum it out of kids. I mean, that's why your podcast is so important. Kids play more creatively 
outside. They play more creatively in green space. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one thing that worries me or troubles me and worries me, um, I guess I'm saying, saying worries a lot because I am worried, um, is that, that, um, that, that devices, digital devices are now part of being outside and they're so unnecessary. Mm. So, you know, it, it maybe it's great that there are apps that can identify plants or identify trees, but kids don't need them in the moment. Right. You can do that when you get home. What they need is to develop a deep and passionate relationship with the outside world. Yeah, and it's something to turn to, which was um, a topic that you talked about in your book. I thought, you know, that we're sort of becoming dependent on screens and and really, you know, we we should be or could be dependent on our play experiences and how that um, increases our capacity to deal with hard things and complex things. You, you had something in your book yeah. about, actually, that really was a light bulb moment for me because it seems that we're really avoiding kids being bored. Um, it's something that I notice, you know, and so, you know, as a society as a whole, we're enrolling. Um, and, and I did that when our kids were really small. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do with my kids. Everyone is enrolling in different programs and, and certain programs are fantastic, um, but sort of almost as over enrollment. Uh, you know, kids that are busy from 6 a.m. to, you know, 7 p.m., they got all sorts of things going on. And you say kids big, you talked about how kids' big feelings affect adults. And sort of this, and I think that being bored is a big feeling. This, I'm bored. Oh, they're so, you know, dramatic about it. And then it really does cause big feelings as an adult. You're trying to fix that, you know. Um so, so can you talk, I think that maybe is one of the biggest things that's going on is that we're sort of trying to suppress um, the, the big feelings that our kids are having that they're causing us to have. Um, so can we kind of talk about that? You talked about it with your daughter, you know, when she's happy, angry, or scared. You said, I find her negative feelings sometimes harder to bear than my own. Yeah, I mean, you know, we love our children, we want the best for them, and it's painful to see them sad. Mm -hmm. And, or, and, you know, can be scary to see them really, really angry. Right. You know, and that's why we, we need, but first of all, we need to acknowledge and validate those feelings. I mean, that's what I said earlier, it's okay to be angry, but you can't hurt anybody. Everybody gets sad sometimes. I mean, I think that validating feelings and understanding that feelings don't necessitate certain actions, um, that, that that's important. It's important for us to remember that. And it's important for us to help kids learn that it's okay to feel whatever. You just can't necessarily act on those feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's, um, yeah, so that, that's, you know, one big thing, but boredom, um, it, I, it, 
I mean, it, I think you're right. I mean, the, the boredom is um, we today seem to feel that we need to constantly entertain mm -hmm. our kids. And so, and that's one of the things about, um, about, you know, smartphones and tablets and the ubiquity of them is that, um, is that they don't allow kids to have the experience of not knowing what to do because there's always something to do. Right. And what kids do is being dictate, dictated externally. And, and, but the thing about not, not knowing what to do is that that's when kids generate something to do, something that comes from themselves. And I don't know if you've ever watched kids in a line when they're waiting. Um, I, 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 I do that a lot, especially, you know, if they don't have screens yeah. to see what they do. And what they do is play. I mean, and maybe they like start moving in weird ways or only stepping on the black squares if there's, you know, linoleum or hopping or, you know, singing or doing something. They do something to entertain themselves yeah. and, and generating that, the capacity to generate that is so important and necessary. I mean, it's how... Um, and also they get, have an opportunity to be curious and to wonder about the world. And so, you know, we need curiosity. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that's how discoveries are made. Right. And, and, and we also need to, to feel that what we generate has meaning and, and is valuable and that we can generate. Mm -hmm. And that's what, what, uh, why I, I wrote about um, the problem of ubiquitous screens and all of the toys that are linked to the screens. Mm -hmm. Kids play less creatively with media-linked toys. Right. And, and that makes sense because the toys already come with, um, with a script. Yeah. And a voice. Yeah. And, and my experience has been that when kids are playing with the media link toy, it's very hard to encourage them to do something that isn't in the script. Mm -hmm. uh, I like how the, the book was such a reminder to just sort of take a pause and just to, to think a little bit more long term. Um, because you say all children sort of in this vein all children deserve a chance to develop their inner resources to master whatever challenges they face. And sort of that when we turn to tech, um, that they're, that kids are losing opportunities. Um, they're losing, losing capacity to self soothe. You talk about, or, um, we're wiring dependence. Um, and so these things are, are sort of long-term. They are. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that I think it's important to talk about is um, there's a lot of blame being placed on parents and, um, and, and parents have responsibilities and, and, 
And we are all, including parents, way too addicted to our devices. Yeah. You know, I mean, that just go, you know, goes across the board and, and that certainly can interfere with, with, you know, raising children. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to be a parent today. I mean, even before COVID, it was hard because you have this commercialized culture that is, um, is luring your kids and also sending the false message that kids need the things that corporations sell in order to be happy. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, unless you move to the woods and unplug, which most of us can't do or don't want to do, you know, your kids are, you know, going likely to be faced with, and you are going to be faced with families who do things differently. You know, so, you know, I know parents set rules about technology and then their kids go, go to school or, you know, daycare. And all of a sudden they're exposed to kids who have a lot of this stuff. And, 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 you know, that's so compelling. Yeah. So, and, and so I, I just think I, I'm not here to blame parents you know, I don't, I think it's really hard. Yeah. But, but the other thing um, is that the, the technology is just so powerful mm -hmm. and compelling yeah. that it's, you know, it's really hard to resist, but it's also important to differentiate a baby from a four-year-old and a four-year-old from an eight-year-old and, and to remember child development and that things change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's no evidence that babies and toddlers can learn anything meaningful from a screen, but it is possible for older kids, mm -hmm. you know, and, and when I was writing the case for make-believe, um, I got stuck because here I was, you know, talking about my problems with children's screen time. And yet screen media was really important to me when I was a child. I became a ventriloquist because of television. Interesting. And, and my, my play centered for in middle childhood centered around two media characters, Flash Gordon, who was this space guy, and Peter Pan. And, and I honestly, I stopped writing for a month because I thought I'm just being so hypocritical. Hmm. How can I do this? You know, I mean, also I worked in television, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I see, I see the potential for kids as long as they're not babies and toddlers. But then I realized what the difference was and the difference was access. Mm -hmm. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. I saw Flash Gordon. It was on television maybe once a year. I saw it once a year. I was enraptured by Flash Gordon. Um, and then I saw Peter Pan once in a, in the in a movie theater, and I didn't see it again until I was 19. Wow. So if I wanted to evoke the, the very strong feelings I had about that character and their world, those characters in their world, I had to play mm-hmm. because yeah. I didn't have any other way of accessing it. But today, you know, kids, as I said, they see something at home. Maybe they, maybe they go to the movies and see it in a theater. Then they see it on video or they see it on YouTube or they, they can see it over and over and over again. Right. So there's no reason for them to play. Mm-hmm. So, so one, one piece of advice, I think, you know, I'm not suggesting that once kids are old enough to follow a storyline that the parents, you know, absolutely ban them from watching a quality television show or a quality, you know, film, however you define quality, but, um, but you might, want to have a conversation with them that says, you know, you can watch this, but we're not going to buy any of the toys. Huh. Or you can watch this, but we're going to buy one toy and that's it. Yeah. And, to, and you know, to set limits yeah. on it. That's a really good uh, idea. You know, and your kids will, 
you know, they may complain, they may nag, because that's another thing that commercial culture does is, you know, encourage kids to nag, mm-hmm. um, which is so bizarre if you think about yeah. it. You know, as a colleague of mine said, you know, I mean, why would corporations do something that would make parents absolutely miserable? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to be the object of nagging. Yeah, it's like what you said earlier about when kids have big feelings, it's really hard to deal with them. So when you're in the store and they want the thing and they have very big feelings about it, it's really hard as a parent to deal with that. I thought that part of the the book was made, you know, so eye-opening for me, made made so much sense of why some of these situations are so hard for parents. I really like that part you talked about Flash Gordon in your book and Peter Pan has also that made a lot of sense too. You know, in my childhood I watched Pippi Longstocking. Uh, you know, Uh she had the red braids and and she was always playing pretend, but we didn't watch it much. And so it really did spark my imagination. You know, I remember playing the things that she would play and we had books and, um, but like that space allowed me to bring my imagination to it as opposed to it all being scripted. And I think today, because, you know, you buy it on DVD and then, or it's on streaming you know, it's on Disney Plus or whatever. You, you, the kids can watch it every single day, and so there is no space to bring your own imagination. I thought, I'm glad you kept writing, Susan, because that was really that part that you brought up was really interesting to me in your book. I'd never heard anyone talk about that. Um, you know, like how you're saying that television and screens can spark our imagination um, and can even spark our life, our life path, just in moderation. And especially, you know, for younger kids, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, you really, you know, have to be careful. And once you introduce screens, you know, into a child's life, and I'm not talking about video chatting, right? Uh, you know, that's, you know, of course, you know, kids should have access to adults who love them, even if the adults are millions of miles away. Um, but once you introduce kids to screens, they're so powerful, you know, and, and so compelling that, um, that they're, they're going to be a factor you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. And that is kids nagging to go back on your phone or, you know, to go back, you know, to watch a program and, 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 you know, parents I know who have delayed introducing their screens, you know, say that actually they have an easier time of it. Yes. Because they're not having to deal with that kind of nagging. Yeah. And also their kids have an opportunity to learn how to play by themselves. Mm-hmm. And if, if screens dominate the life of a baby or toddler or young child, then the only way often or the, or the, the consequence could be that that's that they need those screens in order to, as you said, I think to amuse or soothe themselves. Mm -hmm. You have a statement in your book and it was, I was just looking at it on my notes here that convenience comes at a cost that that was such a big statement. And I, and I love that the tone of your book, the case for make believe it's not guilt inducing is not the tone. The tone is 
um, is hopeful, you know, and the tone is strengthening, like just wait a little bit longer. You know, here's all the things that would happen, the wonder, the intellect, you know, all of the things that you're preserving if you wait just a little bit longer. And I love that tone of your book. I, I love that idea of saying, we're going to watch, but only get one toy or, or we're not going to buy any of the toys. Your book has a lot of really practical ideas in it as well. Uh, just cute, simple ideas like the socks arguing. There was a, an idea in there about the socks, maybe trying to get ready or, you know, and you have the socks argue about which one's going to go on first or, or, or something like that. And you talked about yeah. playing I Spy and Jado. I think that's how you pronounce it. I've not heard of that one. Can you tell us about what, is that the right way to pronounce well, Jado. it? Well, yeah, Jado is really interesting. I mean, it's not for very young kids because you have to be able to read and write. But Jado is the paper and pencil version of Wordle. Wow. Which Wordle has, you know, this screen game has just taken everybody by storm. Everybody's playing Wordle and posting their scores. But actually, it was a paper and pencil game that, that, you know, my family used to play when I was, you know, old enough. And I played with my daughter and my daughter, who is now 35, and I still play. And, you know, basically, instead of, you know, having the word up on a screen, you each pick a word and then you guess. You can look up and, you know, probably find the rules online. It's a really fun game to play with somebody mm -hmm. else. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I think, I mean, it's just so ironic that, you know, yeah. word was, served, was sold for millions of wow. dollars to the New York Times when it has existed as a paper and pencil game. Wow. Well, it just goes to show you that we're still the same. You know, we're still longing yeah. for the same types of things. They just uh, yeah. they just made it into a product that they could sell. Uh, real quick, I know we're, we're running low on time a little bit, but um, you do talk in your book about how play affects intellect. And I think that's a really important reminder. Uh, it's easy to forget. Um, it seems frivolous a lot of times. So how does, um, but we're really concerned about our kids academically, I think, uh, as a society at large. Um, so it's always a good reminder. Can, can you tell us, there's a little encouragement, you know, that play helps kids intellectually. And, and we're talking about, you know, hands-on play whether it's making up games outside or making up, up stories with dolls or figures or drawing, painting, you know, whatever. For one thing, um, it really helps with executive function, you know, which is, you know, the capacity to start something and, and finish it. You know, that's basically, you know, sort of what um, executive function is about to initiate, see something through, you know, and, and, you know, and complete whatever the task is. Well, that's something that kids learn how to do in play, mm -hmm. in creative play. You know, you decide you want to paint a picture and you do it and you finish it, or you want to build a structure. And the motivation is coming from within you. It's not um, building a structure so that you get an, a, a reward at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, you build a structure for the satisfaction um, of doing it. So, you know, it's how, um, especially little kids, they learn how to sort things, which is so important. If they're playing, you know, with blocks, they're learning about the meaning of numbers, you know, wow. to say nothing of gravity and, 
and all sorts of things. I mean, um, what my colleagues, you know, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Roberta Golenkoff talk about is that, that kids aren't empty vessels waiting to be filled. They're active learners. Right. And, and, and for young children, active learning, you know, that's what happens when they're playing. I thought it was interesting, um, something that really stuck out to me as well. Um, our youngest is five, and she learned how to climb a fence uh, just this past spring. She'd been working about it on it for about 18 months. You know, I've got um, just these memories of her, you know, trying and saying, nope, can't do it, come back down. You know, and she, and she finally got it, swung the leg over, older brother helped her a little bit. She got down. She's so excited. Well, then she did it over and over and over and over and over and over again, you know. But you have in your book, you talk about how they're learning how to learn. And that was so eye-opening for me because I thought, well, this is a simple thing, climbing a fence. I didn't get super involved, just was kind of there to help her down if she needed, um, you know, whatever. And eventually she figured it out all on her own. I, I wasn't involved you know, on helping her actually get fi finally figuring out she did. And then she somehow knows that if she does it over and over again, she'll be good to go for the future. You know, and she can move on to something that's more challenging. Right. And one of the things that the, the um, ed tech world does, especially, and, and toy companies today, is they talk about making learning fun. Hmm. As, and, and, you know, the implication is that learning is boring. Wow. But, you know, it, when it's the kind of learning your daughter was doing, you know, to climb that fence or um, any, you know, thing that's intrinsically motivated, that's that where the motivation comes from inside of us mm -hmm. because we want to do something, um, it, it, that, that's not boring. Right. And also, it may not have necessarily been fun for your daughter to keep trying and trying and trying, but it was meaningful for her. Learning, it doesn't have to be fun, although it certainly can be, but it needs to be meaningful. Right. And, and it can be if, you know, especially when it's generated by what's going on inside yeah. of us. Well, Susan, I got so, I really got so much out of, out of both of these books of yours. Uh, like I said, Consuming Kids was the first one I read, The Hostile Takeover of Childhood, and The Case for Make-Believe, Saving Play in a Commercialized World. They're just phenomenal books, uh, great for any parent to read. And tell us, um, tell us one more time, September 13th, Who's Raising the Kids?, Big tech, big business, and the lives of children. Susan, if people right. want to um, ha yeah, have some information, uh, is there a place for them to follow along with you? Should they just be on the lookout for it? Um, it it's it's already up on um, on Amazon. Oh, good for pre-order. So it can be pre-ordered. Okay. And um, and um, my website is susanlin.net. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that's um, another way, you know, for people to get in touch with me or, you know, to see what's going yeah. on. 
That's great. I'm, I'm so excited to be able to talk about that new book that's coming in just a few months. Uh, Susan, we always end our podcast the same way um, with a meaningful childhood. Usually we say outside, but it doesn't have to be a meaningful childhood play experience of yours. Oh, wow. Um, well, I, I, I think that, um, you know, because I started thinking about, you know, about all the things we did outside. Um, so one of the things, um, we had a backyard that was uh, mostly dirt. And so we made a lot of use of that dirt. We dug rivers, my sister and I, um, and, and we had like, first we dug a straight river and then we had to get the water to run down. And then we, we put in one island and we had to have the, the water go around the island before it could get down. And then two islands and things like that. We played bakery with, you know, the dirt and the sand. Um, our yard also had a lot of weeds, you know, and you know, those weeds that look like wheat, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. we could take off whatever those are called, the little yep. wheat things and sprinkle them on top of the cakes and things that we were making. Um, that was really quite wonderful. Is it, that's such a, um, there's so much packed in there that all you needed was dirt and water. <laughs> you know, yeah. it goes so in line with your this book about consuming kids and, you know, and how we're just trying to sell them so much and that your most meaningful time, you know, a, a meaningful time for you as a child involved dirt and water and weeds, <laughs> you know, <Yes. laughs> and, and that's what you needed. And that left an impact on you for your whole life. So, well, Susan, I really appreciate it. Uh, I so enjoyed this time with you. Thank you. Thank you for being here and taking the time and uh, really looking forward to talking to you later on this year. Yeah, me too, Jenny. This was so much fun to talk yeah, to you. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep. Oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. 
Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking